Another deep breath into your bellies, just reminding you, anytime we sit in sermons, it's more than information, it's conversation with Jesus. The Spirit has very specific things He wants to say to each of us as individuals, and certainly to us this morning as a community of believers who are newly forming here in the city of San Diego. So at the pinnacle of the cultural revolutions of the 60s, there were poets that rose up, singers and songwriters like Bob Dylan, and they became the prophets of the day. One of Dylan's most famous songs, the opening lyric goes, come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. <laughs> now, friends, even though those words by Dylan were sung into some of the most vicious political maelstrom we have seen in our society, that is, a massive storm, we were emptying Vietnam, much like the controversy happening right now with our emptying of Afghanistan, America was shamed. The left and right was hyper-polarized. Dylan was singing into a moment where civil rights activists were actually marching in the streets, just as we've seen over these past months and years here in San Diego and abroad. And Dylan was singing and prophesying, literally calling it what it was, into a moment where the moral and the social and the sexual foundations, the mores of society that had been held throughout the history of, in particular, Western society in the United States, they were being dismantled brick by brick, burning of the bra, dropping of the LSD, doing whatever we wanted. But I can tell you that even in that moment in the 60s, Dylan nor his contemporaries could never have imagined the rapidity, that is the rapidness, the tornado style speed and the intensity of change that you and I are experiencing in this generation of the church. Now, we're a church plant. They say that church planting, and my wife and I have been in this world for two decades now, we can affirm this. They say that church planting is one of the most difficult ministries to be called to in the service of Jesus. And I can tell you that it is difficult. I can also tell you that nobody said how difficult it would be planting the church in the middle of a global plague with political upheaval and social unrest, splitting everything at the seams. The fact that you and I are in this room after 2020 together as a church plant. It is a literal miracle. You are a miracle because of your response to Jesus. Though we have found ourselves in one of the most intense seasons in the history of humanity, particularly in Western society, so many Christians have stood their ground and said, I'm going to live more fully, more deeply into Jesus and his people. You have responded incredibly, and that is a gift of grace from our Father. And so with all of that, set in place. This morning, we are kicking off an intentional 10-week series, and this 10-week series is going to be highlighting the change in times, the unique circumstances, the unique challenges that Christians face in this moment as we practice the way of Jesus, as we apprentice ourselves under Jesus, as we look to Jesus as our example, our authority, our king, we're going to be taking 10 weeks to highlight and emphasize and explore the unique challenges that this generation of the church faces, 
Hence the title of our sermon series, Future Church. What is the church of Gen Z going to look like? How do we prepare the young people of this day and age to pass on a church not only to their kids, but their grandkids and their great-grandkids? Remember at Neighbors, we're not working on a five-year strategy. We're working on a five-generation strategy and beyond. Now, this series is going to be unique for a number of reasons. It's the first time we've ever done a series like this, and I could not be any more excited about it. Number one, number one unique reason, the bulk, the lion's share of this material is based on Tim Keller. He's a pastor in Manhattan. Tim Keller's free ebook entitled How to Win the West Again. Keller is, if you're not familiar with him, without question, one of the, if not the most influential and insightful voices in this generation of the church. We're offering you guys that free ebook. You can go right out to the Connect desk. There's going to be a QR code that you can flash with your phone. It's 60 pages. You can read it in a day. It is incredibly important that it will give you the broad overview. So go download the book. It also comes in an ebook for you auditory learners. I cannot stress enough. Be reading this book. It will give you insight into who we are and where we're going in this series. Number two, and I love this. Most of you may be familiar, some of you may not, may be familiar with these names, but last year, a pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer, and then a pastor friend of mine in San Francisco, Dave Lomas, Reality San Francisco, they actually, together with a couple other churches, a couple churches in the UK, they collaborated, they researched, they developed the material that we're going to be covering, and they taught through this series last year. So we, with their permission and actually their encouragement, this is part of the plan, this is part of the strategy, we are literally adapting. In some cases, I'm full on just cutting and pasting some of JMC's stuff because it's absolutely just brilliant, and I want you to have it in your minds and brains. We are literally applying their stuff for our community. And then third, this is the thing I'm most excited about, Future Church. We're not doing this alone. We're doing this in concert with us, Neighbors Church, and then our sending sister church, Park Hill Church. So Evan right now is saying exactly what I'm saying, almost verbatim in his notes. And Light Church, Benji up in Encinitas. He's literally reading his notes right now, and hopefully we're like synced up right now in the spirit. It's totally amazing. And so we're teaching this material together, and here's why. We are utterly convinced that a visible, concrete alignment of churches in belief and behavior is part and parcel of how God wants to revive and renew his people. And so we are concretely pursuing that as a family of churches here in San Diego, where you normally churches are competing with each other and contesting with one another. We're seeking to be a people who are living as the church in San Diego together. It's very, very cool. So this first session, I'm going to start talking really fast. We're going to get through a lot of content today. If you have something to write with, it should be up on the screens for you, but we're going to start rip-roaring through this material. This is going to be a 100,000-foot overview. It's going to give us a general roadmap for where we're going over the next 10 weeks. Are we all ready? Buckle up, tighten it up, here we go. I personally recently concluded a very extended season of meditation in the book of Judges. If you've never read the book of Judges, it's not a fun place to spend a lot of time meditating. Judges is not your flannel graph storybook Bible stuff for your kids. It is a gnarly book. Judges is filled with manipulative, abusive leaders. Judges is filled with corrupt, polluted politics and political upheaval left and right. Judges is actually filled with cynical, deconstructing believers demanding that God give them signs before they serve God. Gideon and his fleece that has become so famous. Judges is filled with ethnic and racial strife and conflict. Judges is filled with false religion and idolatry. Judges is filled with some of the most horrific subjugation of women that we see anywhere on the planet and in history. And Judges is filled with sexual perversion and abuse. And the book 
ends with this ominous line. Verse 21, or excuse me, verse 25 of Judges 21. Shua read it for us. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges is the story of a society decaying from the inside out. Judges is the story of the demise and the fall of the nation of Israel because the people collectively had unhinged themselves from God's moral, social, and absolute authority and decided to do, as Adam and Eve had done in the garden, what they thought was right in their own eyes. Now, the parallel, as you read through the book of Judges, of Israel's slide into civil and moral pandemonium and our modern moment, it's really uncanny. I found it quite eerie, to be honest with you, to be in a chapter of this ancient Israelite text, these ancient Hebrew sages, and then to get onto my newsfeed and go, wow, 2.0. As late modern people, that's you and I, that's what sociologists call us. We are post-late modern people. We are late modern people. As we have unhinged ourselves and actually lost the biblical worldview upon which the United States and the West was actually built. Western values and morals are built on Christian ethics and values. But as we have disjointed ourselves and unhinged from those sources of morality and right and wrong, our society collectively no longer has a set of shared values and standards of right and wrong. We all disagree on whose values and what's right and what's wrong and how things should go. We are what we see in our political, racial, ethnic strife. We are progressively a society where everyone, every little tribe and every individual within the tribe is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so for the church, in the midst of this maelstrom, that's a big word that means storm, in the midst of this warring factions of everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, for the church, this has resulted in two things. Number one, God bless this. It is the death of Christendom. This storm is bringing on the death of Christendom, but it's bringing on the renewal of Christianity. Let me flesh out those definitions for you. It's very important. The death of Christendom. In this generation of the church, what we are seeing as leaders is there's a great sifting happening. There's a great shaking. There's a great sorting of sorts happening. The loss, with the loss of our historical and traditional anchors, the way that we understand our worldview, that loss is bringing about too much pressure and it's bringing an end to what many have simply called Christendom. Christendom is not Christianity. Christendom is all sorts of different things that have the name of Christianity on it but are not following Jesus. So nominal Christianity. That is, I kind of have a sort of practice of Jesus if it's helpful for me. Cultural Christianity, which is of the 50s and behind that. The 60s destroyed cultural Christianity, by the way. Like it was normal for you to go to church and you actually would be given power and prestige and position if you went to church. That went away in the 60s, especially in urban centers. Liberal and progressive Christianity. Think of the mainline denominations. They have been emptying for years. What I call Christianity of convenience a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything. This is Christendom. Self-help Christianity. Christianity is not a sophisticated self-help program. And so if you arrive to a church thinking this is going to be my sophisticated self-help program, I'm telling you the storms of our cultural moment, you won't be able to weather it. A Christianity endowed with social and capital power 
which is what the church has been in the West, really since Constantine. There are sociologists and those that study such things that are saying we, the church is entering a post-Constantinian era now. Lots of history in that. Can't explain it. Look it up. The reality is this, these forms of Christianity can no longer weather the pressures and the storms of a society that has turned against its historical Christian foundations. It just can't last. The waves are rising. The storm is beating against anything that has the name of Christ in it, and it is crumbling. It is falling with a great crash. And yet, in the midst of this great crash, rooms like this fill up with a bunch of 20-year-olds because this is what's happening. There is a groundswell of souls who are experiencing this great renewal in the midst of all the winds and the rising tides. There is this deepening conviction of God's regenerate people. The Holy Spirit is moving, and Christians Young and old are saying, in the midst of all this storm, in the midst of all this pressure, I want my convictions not to be compromised, but to be strengthened. I want my compassions to increase. I want my love and generosity to amplify the good news of Jesus. Christians in the midst of this season are seeing that their love for God and their love for their neighbor is actually intensifying. And these pressures that we're all facing are producing a powerful renewal of Jesus's people. And we at Neighbors and Light, Park Hill, Bridgetown in Portland, Reality San Francisco, some guys in the UK, John Tyson and the crew at Church of the City in New York, we literally are praying to be spearheads. I don't say that with hubris or pride. We are praying to be spearheads, pioneers of a renewal movement in the church for your generation and beyond. And as we together practice the way of Jesus, what the Spirit will do is he will animate in us. He will animate us as a refuge and a hospital for the storm-tossed souls who are going to come in from this warfare, this chaos, this storm of everybody doing what's right in their own eyes they will come in, and we are to serve as a refuge in a hospital. Now, the next eight weeks, notice I said eight. Next week, we're just going to be praying. I'll explain that further in just a moment. But for the next eight weeks in this series, 10-week series, next week prayer, and then we start eight weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to explore. There are many, many challenges that we face, but we've distilled it down. The guys have actually distilled it down to eight challenges, eight specific challenges. Let me walk us through them. Eight challenges that we face as a church. Number one, individualism what we call radical individualism in our cultural moment. This is a massive challenge to the church. I've mentioned his name before, philosopher Charles Taylor. He calls ours an age of exclusive humanism. That is, we've lost the transcendent and all we have is the imminent. Everything that is only material and in front of us. Therefore, our culture orients everything around the individual. Divorced from anything transcendent, anything outside of the individual. And so this commitment to personal autonomy and this commitment to I define myself apart from what my parents or my professors or my pastors or my God says, I define myself from the inside apart from any other, this is a major challenge for the church because we are a family that forms one another. We actually take our shape in the midst of each other. It's the way that God has designed human souls to be formed in relationship. And so the cultural mantras, tell me if you've heard these, be true to yourself. You do you. You speak your truth. Those mantras, those commands, they actually deform our relationship one unto another in Jesus's community. They pollute it. They corrupt it. Radical individualism. 
that we face in our society, it thwarts, it actually stands in opposition to the formation of loving community. It cuts against the ideals of unconditional love and service and care and good done for the other at cost to self, which is what Christianity is. Worse yet, every person I meet, including myself in some measure, continues to be starved for loving relationships with others. And yet, what happens is, in a radically autonomous culture that's committed to the individual, those mantras, they, they, they push against what is necessary for radically intimate relationships, which is sacrifice and commitment. We are the culture that is able to shut down any sort of commitment with just a quick three-minute text two seconds before we're supposed to be there. And then we wonder why we long for relationships so badly. We wonder why we hurt and we're so lonely because we're just texting ourselves out of what it requires to be one with other people. So how, we ask this question on challenge number one, how do we live together in a thick web of loving relationships as brothers and sisters in the family of God? Number two, second challenge that we're facing in this cultural moment is idolatrous ideologies. Say that 10 times fast. Idolatrous ideologies. <laughs> we live in an age of ideology, both on the left and on the right. And so today, what once was in the academy, ideas about human flourishing that would be debated what is the best political system? What is the best economic system? What is the best way of understanding race and theory? What is the best way of understanding gender? What is the best way? These were ideas that were debated in the academy and then would filter down through the people, but they were only ideas. We still had this kind of main set of ideas that governed us collectively as a society. Today, our ideas are no longer debatable. Our ideas have become a source of our identity, and ideology has become a source of our identity, and that gives us a pseudo sense of being part of a community. What that means is we now judge each other as right or wrong. You're a good person because you sit in this spectrum of ideology alongside me, and you are the bad people because you sit on this side of the spectrum of ideology. I identify with this group. I disidentify with that group. Therefore, I belong to this vicious community that eventually eats itself from the inside out as well because the ideologies are all moving towards each person doing what is right in their own eyes. Ideologies of our day, be they political, economical, sexual, whatever they may be, ideologies of our day are the idols that we are tempted as the church to bow down to and to worship and to go to war over. And I would say the greatest tragedy beyond the plague and the political, political upstarts and the marching in the street, the, the horrific tragedies that we saw over these last two years the greatest tragedy in the church has been watching Christians get sucked into the vortex of warring ideologies, casting Jesus aside, twittering and Facebooking and ranting right alongside the rest of the world. Forgetting that these are ideologies, ideas, not our identity, not our community. So we have to ask the question in challenge number two, how do we stay faithful to the way of Jesus and the great tradition of the church handed down to us over the centuries in an age where warring ideologies and algorithms on your social media accounts are literally vying for your allegiance constantly. Number three, moral relativism. If you can't tell the next eight weeks, they're going to be thick. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be good. Moral relativism. This is the third challenge we face as a church in our generation. In a society where everyone progressively is doing what is right in their own eyes, 
Morality is reduced to the individual's personal authority and ideas outside of any objective source. The key question being in that moment, whose morality gets to be imposed on everybody else's morality? Whose morality wins? In our history, traditionally, we've had a, an agreed-upon set of moral values and beliefs and behaviors handed to us by Christianity in the West. That's gone. And so without an objective, absolute authority that everyone kind of agrees to and abide by, the only path forward is moral chaos. Now, think about this. In the United States, this chaos was kind of baked into the cake from the very beginning of the American experiment. We actually had from the very beginning a pluralistic framework, which is beautiful. A nation represented by different tribes, different beliefs, different religions, different uh, ethnicities and tongues. And so there's always been this pluralistic sort of conflict brewing under the surface. But in our day, the problem has been made more acute than ever because moral consensus on politics, on the means of justice, on sexuality, on gender, and on a whole host of issues, well, consensus has collapsed into angry factions, incapable of finding common ground. There is no more conversation. There is only cancellation of those that don't fit in our world and have the right words, according to our definition of right and wrong. Who wins in that? It remains to be seen, friends. It remains to be seen. So we ask this question on challenge number three. How do we as Christians stay true to Jesus' worldview, the way he saw the world, and how do we abide or line ourselves up with Jesus' moral compass in all areas of ethics, in all areas of behavior, wrong and right belief, wrong and right behavior? Number four, fourth challenge, the digital revolution. If you've been at Neighbors for more than a couple Sundays, you've probably heard us talk about this. We have been beating on this drum from our very beginning our three core values don't just randomly get picked out of anywhere because they sound cool according to what's in the air. <laughs> Stillness and simplicity and dependence on the Holy Spirit. These are bulwarks. Bulwarks is a big word that means like a big rock out in the ocean. These are bulwarks that can't be moved against the riptides of digital distraction in our day. Catholic priest Ronald Warheiser says we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And the problem here, folks, is not just distraction and addiction. It is this amplified rise of tribalism and groupthink and echo chambers and conspiracy theories, truth decay, cancel culture, and a torrent of anxiety and outrage. Listen, as your pastor, I want to encourage you. What you're reading on Facebook and what you're reading on Instagram is hand designed to make you think that the entire world thinks like you. It's very dangerous. And so this has created a culture that is so scared, you and I are scared, angry. I cannot tell you how many times I've wanted to just punch a hole through my computer. Just literally like throw it across the room. Tribal, splintered. It's become so hard that we can't even have a conversation any longer. I have watched friendships and families be split in this past season because of these digital distracted algorithms that are keeping us just moving. So let's ask this question around this challenge. How do we live as a non-anxious presence? How do we Christians live as a non-anxious presence in an age of anxiety? How are we supposed to be peacemakers in an age of rage? Number five, just three more, political polarization. Political polarization is a major challenge for the church in this generation. I'm 44 years old. My earliest political memories are of an actor from California, Ronald Reagan, and he handily won the Republican 
race. Uh, Jimmy Carter, I think, is who he beat. And I can remember, even as a child, just like a little kid, listening to these, these political conversations and sensing, like, well, there's real division. There's real tension about what's being talked about right here. Now I'm talking to people that are in their 70s. And I'm asking them, hey, what, have you ever seen anything like this? And they are saying, unequivocally, they are saying they have never seen a political moment in their 70 or 80 years of lifetime like what we are in right now. Some sociologists actually say that our nation is more divided than we've ever been since the Civil War. And so as the polls have become more extreme in their division, this nuanced, balanced position, what, what Aristotle called the golden mean, that is the middle, what we would call the political center, that has just disappeared. And if it hasn't disappeared, the polls are so extreme on the left and right that when somebody who is a quote-unquote centrist stands up and says, can we find some middle ground here? They are canceled, <laughs> crushed, beat down. As followers of Jesus, friends, you are not left you are not right, nor are you center. Your allegiance is to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of men. So how do we as Christians live out our allegiance when we are caught in the middle of this civil war raging around us? Number six, sixth challenge for the church today. All of this has led to a low grade, if not full on burned out exhaustion. Exhaustion. How are you guys doing today? Most of you respond with, I am so busy. <laughs> How are you guys holding up today? I have this and this and this and this and this, plus I have another two hours on Instagram to make sure I get caught up. And, and, and there's the political conversations and the family conversations and the friends conversations, and, and I'm dealing with a bunch of anxiety, and my counseling's not helping me right now, and I'm exhausted. And so our society and the church is dealing with this just as much is dealing with this burned out exhaustion due to loneliness and anxiety and depression and distraction and anger and fear. The church has become and the people of society have become soul ragged, worn out. So we Christians have to ask an honest question. How do we don the easy yoke and bear the light burden that Jesus promised to us? Here's the question I wanna ask when we get to this session. Is it possible for you and I to live out of rest as a state of existence, not something we just dream about. Number seven, careerism. In a church like ours that's full of young students that are preparing to go into the world of work, this is so important. A couple weeks ago, I actually quoted and, and referenced a couple Princeton economists, and they've plotted a rise in what they call the deaths of despair. And they, they attribute these deaths of despair to the widening chasm between the haves and the have-nots, particularly those without a four-year college degree and those with a four-year college degree. In summary, while some are taking their own lives through drugs and alcohol and literal suicide because they have not, there are others that do have. They have the career, and they have actually made that career, and the career and the employers have made that career into a cult that you're to give your life to, find your identity in, find your family in. It's really interesting watching modern businesses call themselves families, and then when they don't act like families, it just gets ripped apart, ripped to shreds. And so this careerism creates this kind of work cult. And what that does, be warned, is it will reduce your soul to where you are nothing more than a production machine fueled by ambition and greed and compromise to get ahead so that you can get to the place in the careeristic cult where you are at the top of the hierarchical ladder. 
We have to ask the question as Christians, how do we do our careers? How do we work for the common good of humanity, but from a place of love, from a place of real love, sacrificial love that costs us for the benefit of the other? Finally, number eight, injustice. Injustice. This is the social epicenter and need of our day. What you need to understand, friends, and whether this morning I've already offended you because you're on the right or you're on the left or you're trying to be in the center, listen, as a society decays, the biblical narrative gives record of this over and over and over, and history plays out true this way as well. As a society decays, those that oppress and push down, they begin to oppress and push down more violently until throughout human history, what we have seen is that those that are being pressed down suddenly reach a boiling point, uh, a tipping point, uh, a critical mass where the, they fight back. We call this revolution. And in the revolution, those that were oppressed get victory over the oppressors. But the tragedy of these moments is that often history bears this out true as well. Those who were oppressed, they become just like those that were oppressing them and they become the oppressors. You see this in the Hebrew history books as well, as the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt and went on to enslave and occupy countries not their own. Human initiatives of social justice and activism always have the right impulse. Can I say that again? Human initiatives, these are echoes of God's grace in the world that we want right in the world. Human initiatives of social justice and activism always have the right impulse. But their means and their ends are always imperfect at best and destructive at worst. How do we, this is the question from the challenge, how do we do justice like Jesus? How do we absorb the wrong like Jesus did? How do we care for the least of these like Jesus did? How do we remain self-aware lest we end up becoming the unconscious or even conscious oppressor of the other? There we have it. Eight challenges, eight weeks, eight crucial questions asking how we're going to navigate these times as the church in this generation and beyond. Now, as we move forward, let me assure you, the Holy Spirit is moving in these challenges. God is not up there with his hair on fire saying, oh my gosh, what's going on down there? I don't know how to fix this. The church knows exactly where to be because God knows exactly where to be and he knows exactly how to lead us and exactly what to do with us. He knows how to answer our questions and one of the primary things that I have been so encouraged by is this rising community of churches that are all thinking alike. It's really interesting, you guys. I'll just be very transparent and forthright with you. Before we even move towards doing this series, I wasn't really listening to any of these other guys. And then I began going and listening to some of their other teachings. I was like, oh my gosh, did that guy listen to my sermon? Because he just said exactly what I said. There's been this, this groundswell of leaders who have been through it. They've been in church for 10, 15, 20 years. They've been through the deconstruction. They've been through the burnout. And now they're in this process of like deep spirituality, slowing down, trying to find this way. And so the answer that God is supplying us right now in this moment is to come alongside a like-minded group of churches bound together by common belief and common practice. Let me just explain this further. Here at Neighbors, we're big on rest, rhythms of rest, deep meditation in scripture, Sabbath, committed times of prayer, silence and solitude, calls to community, justice initiatives. Those practices actually have their roots in Christian history, particularly in the monastic movements. Just by a show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the monastic movements at all? 
Oh, one, two, three, three of us. Okay, I've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> How many of you know or have ever seen a monastery? Yeah. So we usually associate that with Catholicism, and the Catholics did continue on with their monastic movements. The Reformation kind of moved us away, Protestants away from the monastic movements. What I want you guys to understand is that from the very beginning of our church, we have been dropping lines about becoming a neo-monastic movement, an urban monastic people in the center of the city. Let me explain the monks to you. Starting around the third, fourth, or fifth century, there were certain groups of Christians that were facing a society that was decaying and collapsing, okay? Those groups of Christians, they began to be to knit themselves together. They began to coalesce and knit themselves together in these very tight-knit communities as society was falling apart around them. Those communities in the 4th and 5th century, the Desert Fathers, the Desert Mothers, they would go on and they would become the seeds of the monastic movements that have actually stretched throughout the centuries right up to today. The Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Augustinian monks, the Dominion, uh, Domitian monks, the, these orders... So some of the most influential thinkers of our history, people like Augustine and Benedict, St. Ignatius, St. Benedict, Julian of Norwich, Francis of Assisi, they established orders that united their followers in both belief and behavior. Just last, uh, no, a couple years ago now, I was at a Franciscan monastery, and I had this moment of realizing this man coalesced a community of believers that his mark and those believers, their power, their, their presence carried through the generations. And now here I am, a modern urban San Diegan sitting in this monastery because Francis coalesced this tight-knit tribe of people together. Now, here's what's really important about this. We're going to go just a little bit long today, guys. Sorry. Listen. Rod Dreher, uh, he's an Eastern Orthodox scholar, wrote a book, kind of flared up about five or six years ago, called The Benedict Option. And in Dreher's basic argument, he is saying that those monastic communities that formed under Benedict, formed under Francis of Assisi, as culture decayed as what became what we now call the Dark Ages, those tight-knit communities of monks, they served as guards of the gospel, it's like society decayed all around them, and they held on to the traditions and the values and the beliefs and the behaviors that had been handed on to them from the very beginning. Now, the monastic movements got weird. If any of you start reading the monks, or you start reading histories of monks, or particularly if you read Protestants who are very critical of the monastic movements, full disclosure, they got super weird out there in the deserts. They fled. They were covering themselves in ants. I mean, they, got, they left scripture in some regards. That's not going to be us. We're team scripture. We're team no ants on us for self-flagellation, okay? And while I disagree with a lot of Dreher's conclusions, I think that his proposals are, that he, Dreher essentially calls the church to flee to the hills. We all need to head to Julian and start up a commune, which I'm down with if anybody wants to do that, by the way. But we also need to have a presence here in the city. We can't flee the cities. We want to be an urban monastic people, and we don't want to get weird. We want to align ourselves with the scriptures. And so my disagreement with Dreher is, is multitudinous, but alongside a, a cohort of like-minded leaders, I am convinced, we are convinced, that adapting this mind frame, we are a tight-knit people 
who live together around a, an agreed-upon authority, that's the scriptures, and who practice a way of life together that will weather as society splinters all around us. We will be this, this hub, this bulwark, this rock in the midst of this decaying society around us, guarding the gospel, guarding one another, and being that hospital and that refuge for the war-torn souls. If revival is coming, we're... We believe it's going to take some sort of neo-monastic form. That doesn't mean that we're all going to go off and join a monastery. It means that we're going to adopt a way of life together that's grounded in prayer and scriptures and community and faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor who resisted the Nazis, he actually established this intentional community, and he, he established this kind of underground seminary. It was like a pseudo-monastery of sorts. And he said this, the renewal of the church will come from a new type of monasticism, which has only in common with the old, so here's what we have in common with it, an uncompromising allegiance to the Sermon on the Mount. It is high time men and women banded together to do this. Generation Z, millennials, angry Gen Xers like me, you God bless boomers sitting in the room. We need more of you, and it's high time. It is high time time that the church band together with a level of allegiance to one another and the scriptures that we have not known because we've been sitting in the seat of power for way too long. And as chaos ensues around us in ever-increasing measure, our prayer is to become an urban, neo-monastic community united by these particular practices, rhythms, ways of life, united by a common rule of life. Let's talk about a rule of life. This is the end goal. This is the long-term vision for this church and for a whole coalition of churches that are forming. A rule of life. Are any of you familiar with a rule of life? Does anybody know what that means? Just a couple of us. Okay, lots of work to do. If you're new to that language, here's the deal. It's not rules of life. I'm not going to, over the next eight weeks, say, here's the rules that you need to abide by. That's not what we're talking about. A rule of life. It's singular. So scholars argue that this word rule, it actually comes from the idea of a trellis in a vineyard. So a trellis is something that the grape vines would actually grow up onto. The metaphor was used very early on by teachers who were taking Jesus' metaphor of the vine all the way to its logical conclusion. In other words, Jesus said for us to bear fruit in the midst of everything, we have to abide in the vine. Jesus was saying that for that to bear the most fruit, there has to be something to support the structure. Okay? There has to be something that lifts the, the, the vines up off the ground and points the vines in a certain direction of growth. And so a vine without a trellis is only going to bear a fraction of the fruit that it's capable of. It's vulnerable to predators and disease. So in the same way, we followers of Jesus, we're to abide in the vine and bear much fruit, but we need a trellis. We need a kind of life structure that creates space for us to abide in. That's what a rule of life is. Here's JMC's quote. A rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did as we live in alignment with our deepest desires. Cultural commentator Andy Crouch just calls a rule of life. It's a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. Now, Evan was hammering this this past week. I'm going to jump off notes here for just a moment. You already are living by a rule of life, whether you want to or not. Most of us wake up in the morning and you have your rule of life. Hopefully it's not the phone, but for a lot of us it is. We wake up and the rule of life is 
do this, do this, do this. For me, I roll out and I head straight for the coffee. And I do my pour over and I pray to God I get a good pour over. And then I head to my quiet, then I head to my quiet place and I sit and I do my hour, hour and a half, whatever I do in that morning. And then my rule of life, you're being governed by schedules and rhythms and practices and beliefs that take you no matter what. We want to develop a rule of life that we're all abiding by. Our long-term goal as a church is to build our lives together around a rule of life. It's why we're calling all of you to pray about staying in San Diego. As scary as that is, saying, I want to stay in this city with my family the long haul. It costs too much. I can't. There's too much liberalism. I can't. All of those things need to be set aside for a moment to say, Father, what are you calling me to do in this generation of the church as I live my life in the midst of a deeply integrated and intertwined group of people, and we have this rule of life that's not only lived about by ourselves, but with each other and with other churches abroad. This is how we want to follow Jesus together as a way of life. And we're going to take our time. I mean, most of us aren't even familiar with monasticism. Most of us aren't familiar with what this rule of life language is. So one drip at a time, we've been dripping it here and there. Silence, solitude, Sabbath, fasting. These are the things we're going to be talking about. And this, my friends, is not to be heavy-handed. Not to be heavy-handed and over-authoritative and controlling and rules where, like, if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you get kicked out of the community. Actually, we want this to be an invitation. You take this at your own pace. We want to be a people that are inviting others to join us in this set of practices and rhythms that we are compelling the world to come be loved by Jesus and love one another together in. So here's the plan. We're almost done. Here's the plan. The next two months, we're going to take those eight challenges that I already highlighted, and we're basically going to offer an alternative vision for the church. We're going to look at the challenge, and then we're going to look at a very specific practice that is specifically geared to form us in the way of Jesus and away from the world toward the kingdom as we develop our life as a church. Let's walk through those eight practices. Number one, community. And it's not going to go in this order, by the way. It's going to be out of order. I didn't have time this week to put them in the right order, so it'll it'll be in a different order. But number one, the practice of community. We want to be a community of tight-knit, loving relationships in a culture of individualism through the practice of community. We actually want to resist the hyper-individualism of our day by saying, I'm going to commit to being in a community. It's going to cost me time. It's going to cost me effort. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost me, but for the benefit of my soul and the benefit of the souls that I've been sent to, I'm going to live deep into a community for the, for the rest of my life. And if I'm called to leave San Diego, I'm actually going to process that with my community around me. That's how tightly knit to them I'm going to be. Number two, a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry through the practice of Scripture. That is a mouthful. That's John Mark Comer's title. (laughs) A community of orthodoxy, that is right belief, that actually abides in the Scriptures. We're Bible people, y'all. We're never going to drift from the Bible. We're going to keep the Bible right at our very center, and we're going to use the Bible to interpret and either resist or apply the ideological points in our culture. Everything will be framed through the kingdom of God. And so learning to read the scriptures correctly and apply them and live by them is the practice that we'll engage in over the lifetime of our church and beyond. Number three, we pray to be a community of holiness in a culture of moral relativism through the practice of prayer and fasting. Fasting, like it's everywhere in the Bible, nowhere in the modern Western church. (laughs) We actually want to reintroduce the practice of even possibly calling us to weekly fasting, a 24-hour fast. 
in one of our first century documents called the Didache. They fasted every Wednesday and every Friday. I can't remember exactly which days it was. But it was common for the first century church to, to have a practice of asceticism, to, to abate or to resist the flesh by literally not feeding it, to, to presently focus. Imagine doing this if you knew that 150, 250, 300, 1,000, 15,000 other people across the nation and the globe were every Wednesday praying together collectively, stopping with dinner on Tuesday night and not eating dinner till the next night. And imagine if we had an app where we could just text each other, I'm so hungry, pray for me. And we could fast together and see what God does. See what God does with our lust, with our pornography addictions, with our impatience, with our anger. See what God does with our fast lips and our slow to hear ears by resisting the flesh in the midst of a culture that says the only thing that is authentic is to give in to every fleshy desire that happens in the moment. Number four, thank you, Max. (laughs) A community of peace in a culture of fear through the practice of silence and solitude. A community of peace. We want to be a non-anxious presence. And so as the world is warring with each other across the factions, as the world gets louder and louder and cancels everybody else that does not agree with them, we pray to be a people of silence and solitude, listening, waiting for God's actual words of kindness and compassion and love and forgiveness and gentleness and acceptance to come forth from our lips to be healing balm in this splintering society. Number five, a community of rest in a culture of exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. So much on this, we will be covering Sabbath again and calling the entire church to a regular rhythm of Sabbathing together. Sabbathing together as a community. Maybe not in your individual physical presence, but knowing collectively on this day, we are all disconnecting to celebrate and delight in God. Number seven, six, what am I on? A community of contribution and a culture of careerism through the practice of vocation. So this will be really good. We actually want to talk about what is it to look at our jobs and our careers as a kingdom vocation. And then finally, a community of justice and a culture of social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is just the theory of, of uh, the hierarchy. The, the fast are eating the slow, the strong are eating the weak in the economic and in the cultural hierarchies of our societies. We want to be a community of justice through the practice of simplicity and generosity. These are all things over the next eight weeks that we're going to be exploring. As I wrap this up, what are we doing next Sunday? Guys, this is all just a bunch of words. Think Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. If the Spirit does not impart this to you, and the only way the Spirit will impart this to you is through prayer. Prayer. Prayer, not just like words with our mouths, but prayer of the human soul to its creator saying, I open myself to you. I acknowledge my loneliness, fill it. I acknowledge my anxiety, fill it. I acknowledge my rebellion, quell it. I acknowledge my longings before you, and I plead and pray for you to come. Next week, we literally are going to go old school Pentecostal church. Shua's going to get up here. I pray, yeah, Shua's going to get up here. Shua's going to get up here and lead worship, I hope, next Sunday. You're committed now. (laughs) Shua's going to be leading us, and I'm going to lead us through three prayer movements next week, starting with contrition. Contrition is an old school word that just basically means repentance that we would repent of our political ideologies, that we would 
repent where we have been compromising Scripture's authority, that we would repent where we've been feeding our flesh, that we would feel contra- that we would be broken by our distraction and that we would turn an intentional focus upon God. So next week, prayer movement number one, we'll take communion to open our time together and we're literally going to spread the chairs out in here and we're going to take time to worship and pray and repent. We're going to ask God to heal our hearts through repentance. Number two, the church more than ever needs to be a voice of compassion. I have no category for Christians that are voices of rage and anger. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't align with Jesus. There is no soul that does not need a gentle and kind voice of compassion. And do you guys know the roots of compassion? Here's just a little Latin lesson for you. Passion, passion is the, is the, it's a Latin term that basically means suffering and calm is with. We want to come alongside our culture with passion, with suffering. We want to suffer alongside our culture and absorb the wrong and be the people who are there with that voice of compassion and gentleness and mercy. Contrition, compassion, and our third prayer movement next week, more than ever, we're going to need courage. Courage. Not the arrogant, haughty, holier-than-thou, judgmentalism courage but a courage that is rooted in, I have repented of my own brokenness before the God that made me. I have experienced the compassion, the passion of Christ who died for me, for my rebellion, for me doing what I thought was right in my own eyes. My king had to die. He had to be crucified for that. I've experienced that compassion. Therefore, I go forth into the world with a humble courage, a gentle, kind courage that says, slay me. I must speak the truths of Jesus. Family, I want us to be family. Are you in? That's the call for the next eight weeks, but not only the next eight weeks. Our sound by culture, three steps to your best life now, has ruined the practice of Christianity. This is going to be a lifelong thing. We're going to dig in. I am praying, my wife and I are praying to be buried here. We are praying to see your grandkids in this place. We're praying to see singles actually brought into the family of God in such a way that we are one. Aunties, uncles, babies, new believers, old believers, non-believers. Praying as a contrite people, compassionate, filled with courage.